All right, welcome back to the show. So I am super excited to be sitting down here with my guest today, Maria. Maria is a real estate investor who is investing mostly in value add uh, big commercial properties, apartment complexes, all the way up to over 100 unit hotels. And she started just like all, all of us here as a new investor, just like every investor does. But now she's working on these big projects. And I'm super excited to get her on the show today and have her talk about her story and her, her journey in real estate, but also some of the more interesting things that she's been working on as well, especially one of her nonprofits, which we'll definitely be getting into. And uh, it'll be a super interesting conversation. So make sure to stay tuned for that. But Maria, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate you being here. I know you're super busy. You're working on a lot of different things. So I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to be here with us. Uh, before we get started into anything, would you mind just kind of sharing your story a little bit? Uh, you know, telling us a little bit about, you know, how you got to this point, how you got started in real estate and uh, kind of what your journey was like. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, my journey actually started all the way back in college. Um, so I was majoring in wildlife biology and conservation, which of course has absolutely nothing to do with real estate. <laughs> But uh, I saw one of those gurus on TV one night while I was up late studying, and it was about real estate. And I've been thinking about, you know, I really love wildlife biology. It's it's where my passion was, but I knew I wouldn't make good money in that field, but it was what I wanted to do. So I was thinking, you know, what what else can I do to supplement my income along the way? And so I ended up buying this course and thought, there's no way this can be real, but it turned out it did work and uh so i ended up buying my first rental or my first property really before i even left um college and i i house hacked that you know because i couldn't really afford to, to maintain it so we did a, a house hack even back then yeah that's awesome so you started out pretty much like a lot of other investors just uh with a house hack right and now you've moved all the way to this point where you know you're hosting your own nonprofits and uh, you're raising money for large apartment complex syndications so as far as that journey goes, right? I mean, I think a lot of people think that when they look at people who are investing in, in these, you know, big units or, or these big properties that, you know, they kind of somehow just started off there. But <laughs> clearly from your story, you know, everybody kind of moves up. So, you know, what was that that kind of um, that transition point, if you will? And did you take a lot of time just kind of doing your own house hacks and investing in single properties before you moved into that? Or was that something that you kind of, you know, just, just jumped into headfirst? Yeah, no, I did absolutely take the slow and painful road and I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> but again, it wasn't my focus. It wasn't my main business. You know, I was focused on being a wildlife biologist and saving endangered species. You know, that was my whole thing. Real estate was just the side gig. So um, it never occurred to me that you can use partners and leverage other people's credibility and that there were masterminds and groups and people that can help you. And also, you know, I'm a bit older. So, I mean, this was back in the 90s where there was less of that. The term house hacking didn't even exist back then, right? So um, I was doing stuff on lease options, which was a very new concept back then. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to go slow and steady, do it on your own. But uh, once I discovered multifamily much later in life, I realized you can partner with people and go a lot faster, a lot quicker, and just, you know, you don't have to learn everything in multifamily is what I discovered. So that was just really um, 2019 is when that happened. You know, uh, I'm sure you'd probably get into it, but everybody needs that big why to really drive them if something's going to change in life. And we all get those moments in life where things change. 
And for me, what changed is I had an autistic son. You know, it wasn't in the plan. So I was fine being a poor biologist, um, more or less throughout my life. But I started thinking about his future and whether or not he'd be able to ever fully support himself. And we had at this point, uh, my husband and I also owned some businesses and they were doing well. But I'm like, well, will he be able to run those, take those over and do that? Or do we need to set him up with something where there's more passive income? And that's when we started thinking more seriously about real estate. And then I said, you know, I want to scale the real estate thing. So I started doing a lot of research, a lot of reading, listening to a lot of podcasts like this, learning from other people. I'm like, how do I scale fastest? And when you do that, you realize multifamily is, is how you scale faster and you do it with other people. Right. Absolutely. I think, you know, for a lot of investors, you know, the reason why they, they want to get into real estate is for the passive income side, right? right. Whatever the reasoning might be, that's the whole end goal for why getting into real estate is the idea in the first place. So I think, you know, a big, big challenge for a lot of people who listen to a lot of, uh, I guess, podcasts out there, or even take a lot of courses is the distinction between active and passive investing. And there's a lot of people who are being taught, you know, invest in fur properties or, you know, a flipping operation. But as you probably know, those things, they're not necessarily passive investing, it's more active investing. Right, right. Yeah. And there's a big difference in uh, the taxes on that too, right? If you're flipping houses, that's active income. So the government's taken a really big chunk of that. When it's passive income, first of all, your tax rate to begin with is lower, and then you get all the depreciation. So a lot of times you're writing off the entire income. And so in the end, you know, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. And so there's that big distinction too. But yes, if you have a full-time job, you have a career that's doing well that you want to keep working at, taking on something like flipping or wholesaling, that's that's pretty much impossible. But anybody can passively invest in somebody else's big deal if you want to get into a syndication. You are an owner in that apartment complex or retail shopping center or office or hotel or whatever that real estate might be. So it's a solid asset backing your investment and you are a true owner in it. So you get all the depreciation tax benefits, but you don't have to do the work. There's a professional team that's handling all that. So that is the beauty of it. But yeah, I mean, if you had a large portfolio of single family homes and you turned it all over to a property manager, there that becomes more passive, right? So there are other avenues of passive, um, but you're always going to be in some sort of control. You're still going to have to make the major decisions there. You know, do you replace that roof? Are you going to evict that tenant? You know, your property manager is going to come to you with some things like that. But it can be more or less hands off. But flipping, wholesaling, no, definitely not. Definitely not passive. <laughs> Right. It's like having another job, right? Like it you said, it absolutely is. Yeah. 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 And sometimes it's even more stressful than your current job, right? With all the, uh, the financial risk that you're putting into it. So I think, you know, a, a good question that I, you know, can think of as far as, you know, what you've been doing with multifamily is the benefits of multifamily. And I've, I've talked to a lot of investors about this. Uh, but as far as just comparing it from a purely passive income standpoint, um, as far as investing in multifamily and syndications, from what you what you know and what your perspective is, what would you say is the comparison between that versus you know maybe some other popular ones that are being talked about out there, which is investing in you know single family properties through uh, turnkey providers uh, is another popular one, and also maybe some of the other asset classes out there like commercial spaces or even self storage units. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's there's pros and cons to absolutely everything. So I, I wish I could say there's one asset class or one particular way that's just all roses, and that's just not the case. But I think one of the things with uh, multifamily in particular that is makes it so what's the word I'm looking for? Lucrative, I guess, um, is is there's just this constant de demand for housing, right? Demand right. for other things come and go. We saw the office space really get hit during COVID, right? But we generally don't see that in the multifamily sector, unless you, you're in a area where people are moving from and to. But if you're staying in those hot markets, it's just a fairly safe investment. There's also such room to scale you get that economy you know uh my words are really failing me today i do apologize <laughs> but uh economy of scale really so when you have w one single family home and that one tenant moves out all of a sudden you went from 100 percent occupancy to zero right? right i mean it would be very difficult or rare that you have a hundred unit apartment complexes then everybody moves out on monday <laughs> you know that just doesn't right. happen so i mean you just factor in that you have a five to ten percent vacancy and that's just part of the cost of doing business but very rarely does your income just completely disappear overnight and somebody maybe totally beats up that house on their way out and now you got to spend all of this money to fix it and all that so overall i find single family homes really is just very risky it can be very risky um and there's also the personal liability, right? You have to sign on that loan. If for some reason you can't make that mortgage, first it's going to ding your credit. And secondly, you could end up foreclosing and actually losing the property, right? When you invest passively in a syndication, you're not signing on the loan, right? Most of the time it's a non-recourse loan, meaning that there's nobody who's going to personally foreclose and take a hit, right? If, if things go completely south, which is very rare, but it can happen. I mean, there's risk in any any real estate investment, right? But then the, the bank can come after the property. They can potentially take the property, but they can't say, well, that didn't make me whole. There wasn't enough equity here. So I'm also going to take your house and your car and the money in your checking account and put a lien on your wages. Like they can't do that. Single family, they can't because you're personally liable for that loan. So I think that is huge. Um, as a passive investor too, you're coming in as what's called a limited partner and your risk really is limited just to what you've invested. So if you've invested 50,000, you can't lose a half a million, right? So even if the property gets sued and it exceeds your insurance and all these other things, all these other safeguards that you have in place, again, you're limited to what you invested. On my single family homes, there is no limit, right? They can come right through that one to another one. I know some people will put them in uh, their, their single family homes into limited liability corporations to try to reduce that. Uh, and they'll put they'll go through the painstaking process of putting each house that they own into a different LLC, which is also very expensive to keep up, maintain, establish. It's a pain in the butt. But um, a lot of times, if the bank finds out you did that, they can actually call the loan due. So that's another risk you're taking. So you've either got the risk of the liability of being sued or the risk of the bank calling your loan due. So the only way to get around that is to put it into a portfolio, get a portfolio loan. But then if one property goes bad within that portfolio, it could foreclose on the entire portfolio. So there's just so many more risks in the single family 
home um, realm than there is in multifamily, in, in my personal opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important for you know our listeners to know about this because you know there's so many different options out there, and to know about the pros and cons of each uh, really will help people make you know at the end of the day their own decision when it comes to investing and what route they want to go. So uh, as far as syndications go, right, the other uh, the other big one that I I hear of like comparing it to is you know uh, investment funds, right? Multifamily funds, evergreen funds that are kind of ongoing. So as far as uh, you know, your perspective, uh, you know. Between syndications and an evergreen fund, you know, what are some of the benefits, uh, you know, in the comparison between those two uh, as an investor, as a passive investor, but also maybe as somebody who is setting that up, you know, on the active side, who is running the operation? Yeah, so uh, it's interesting that you asked that today because I just got off a call about funds. Um, we just had an educational seminar about that um, in one of my masterminds. And uh, yeah, from the active side, setting up a fund is a lot of work. It takes a lot of time, a lot of money. But I can tell you that's a royal pain compared to setting up a syndication. Now, of course, once it's set up, you could keep going for a longer period of time versus having to set up syndications over and over again. So that's kind of the short end of the active side on it. Um, for the passive side, as just an investor, there are, again, pros and cons to everything. Um, the pros is you've got immediate diversification, right? In a fund, you're usually buying lots of different properties. So without you having to invest um, in a lot of different properties, you're automatically kind of diversified that way, right? So if I was doing that in syndications, I might have to find four or five different sponsors and invest with them separately. Um, the negative side is you don't know what you're investing in until after the fact, right? Because a lot of times the fund is, let's say it's for short-term rentals or whatever it is. Um, they're going to raise the money and then they're going to go buy the thing. Whereas with a syndication, they've, they've got the thing under contract and you get to say yes or no that I like that and I can choose to get into that, right? So you get to see it ahead of time. So there's a trust component. If you're going to be investing in a fund, you better really trust that they're going to go buy the right things, the kinds of things that you would approve of and not that they got antsy because they raised this money and they just haven't found the right property, but they got to buy something, right? So they're, they're just going to go get something at this point. Um, not that I think most people do that, but you need to just understand the differences between the two. You're not going to know exactly what you're investing. You're going to know what kind of asset classes because the funds are going to be set up for something in particular. You know, maybe that's self-storage, like you mentioned, or an RV park or whatever. But with a syndication, you know in advance what you're investing in. And you can say, well, I don't like that that market. I, I don't like that one. Or, um, yeah, this one I really love. I'm going to put extra into that one. Absolutely. That's that's a really good distinction, actually. I don't think a lot of people know this. Um, you know, with syndications, uh, you know exactly which property you're, you're investing into, right? It's right. essentially one property. And, you know, you have all of the information about the property, about what the projected returns are, you know, everything that you need to know about the specific property. And it's almost like you're investing in it yourself, right? It's almost like you're the person making the decision versus the fund. You're almost, you're almost trusting like a financial planner to take care of your money That's true. Uh, versus you yeah. making the decision, right? Yeah. And it, it they are structured differently. You know, you're basically investing, you're owning a share of that LLC that is the fund versus a share of the property on this syndication, right? Either way, it's it's flowing through you, taxes and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, there, in a syndication, there's an LLC set up specifically to buy just that one property. So you are, 
it, it's more of a direct line, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So going back to uh, active versus passive investing. So you've been on essentially both sides uh, of that. You know, you've done house hacks. Now you move into the syndication space, uh, essentially running syndications. So from your perspective, right, as maybe someone who's a little bit newer, or maybe someone who has a couple of deals or somebody that's looking to get started to invest in real estate, uh, and they have a full-time career just like yourself, maybe they're on a commission basis, maybe they're real estate related, uh, like a real estate agent, um, what would you suggest that, you know, just from your own perspective and your own experiences that they start with? Should they start uh, investing passively first, and then maybe, you know, when they start building up a little bit more of an income, switch to running more syndications and, and, you know, running their own kind of operations, or should they start thinking about maybe taking some of their time to invest actively just to get more experiences so they can make better decisions um, as a passive investor? Yeah, I think it's a fallacy that investing in single family homes and other asset classes prepares you more for investing in a syndication. Um, they are two very, very different beasts. They're handled very differently. So although it certainly can't hurt to have that knowledge, it's not necessary. You can jump straight into that. And there are a lot of syndicators out there that will let you invest passively, but kind of shadow, you know, peek behind the curtain, see how it's done. Um, I do that for folks all the time. So that's, that's, that is a good way to learn. But it's not necessary. The, um, if you really do want to get in on that active side, if that is the ultimate goal, the one thing that's beautiful about multifamily is every syndication has a team around it. And so you don't have to know everything, right? If you're buying single family homes, you need to know everything. You need to know how to find the good deals. You need to know the markets. You need to know what things are going to rent for. You need to understand how to select and screen tenants. You need to know how to handle evictions. You need, you need to know everything. <laughs> In multifamily, you don't. You could just be the acquisition person that goes and finds the deals, or you could be the person that helps raise the money and keeps in contact with the investors, or you could be the property manager, the boots on the ground, the construction person. There are so many different roles and it is really hard to be good at 10 different things, but I'm sure you can find one thing that you can excel at and you can go to a team and say, Hey, do you need this? Cause I've got this skill set, right? So it's a much easier way to, to get in on, on something I uh, personally, I think, you know, I, I can't be good at all things, but yeah. So, so I think that's a distinction that's really important to know, but yes, you absolutely want to learn about something before you start trying to do it on your own. I would not jump to try and put together your own team and go do this. Um, investing passively first is a great idea. And if not, tag team along with somebody. I had somebody send me a six page proposal today <laughs> to be a mentorship student. Like she says, I will work for you free for one year. Here are my skill sets. These are things I'm willing to do for you if I just get to learn from you. And I was like, that is wonderful. You don't have to do that for free for me for a year. <laughs> I just love your enthusiasm. Yes, I, I will share what I know. And there are lots of people who'd be happy to do that. And then there are people who don't have the time and they're going to say no, but that's okay. Go find somebody else, but find a way to be helpful to a team if you want to be active. Um, that's that's a great way to get into if you don't have the money to start passively investing or do both. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually a really good point that you brought up there is the trade-off for a mentorship Uh you know, a lot of newer investors come in and they almost, I won't say a lot, but there are some people that come in and they almost expect free mentorship from experienced investors. And 
know, there are people who are very giving and, you know, they've been in the business for a long time and maybe they're uh, semi-retired with all the passive income coming in and they're wanting to help people. But usually kind of in the heat of the business, a lot of investors, they're going to be like, well, you know, what are you offering me? Right. So why should I, why should I help you? Are you just going to take away my market share? So as an investor, right. Who is kind of in that position of being more of a mentor, what are some things that I guess you would be looking for, for, you know, a mentee to take on who may not be able to invest passively, uh, but want to like the person that made the six page proposal, uh, like what are some things that you think uh, a newer person who might not have a lot of experience in real estate can really bring to the table so that they can be a part of the team, they can be a part of the operations, get a you know kind of a peek behind the behind the scenes, if you will, and uh, and get help and get mentored. Yeah, I mean, organization is huge. Uh, you have to keep track of so many things. You have to track all your mm -hmm. metrics. You have to track your investor returns. You have to track your payments. Um, there's bookkeeping. So, I mean, even just something like come in and do some of the tedious admin stuff that we all hate. <laughs> like <laughs> you can just come in and do that, and that's gonna give you a really great idea of what goes on behind the scenes right because you're going to have your hands in all of that um market research anybody can do that but it takes time right so if somebody comes to me and they they have a deal in a in a market i'm not familiar with and they want me to maybe join their team or raise money for their investment or something i'm not going to do that unless i know absolutely everything about that market but i don't have time to do that so if somebody wants to do that research for me, of course, the person that's pushing the deal is going to give me all sorts of stuff, right? And tell me it's great, but I need to do that independently. That's that's part of your due diligence. So I would love to have somebody who does that and then just gives me the highlights, the, the bullet points on something like that. So the, those are just a few things while you're gaining your skill sets. Finding the deals is always key. It's very difficult, but if you can make those broker connections and you can get those off-market deals and bring them to me, I'll partner with you all day long. So if you bring me a good deal, you're immediately in, right? Uh, but that's a, that's a very hard thing to do. But if you can do that, that's, that's kind of a sure foot in the door, right? Right. Yeah. I think, you know, these are all really good points for newer people looking to start out, right? It doesn't take too much, but if you were willing to trade your time, right? Somebody else is willing to trade back their time to help you as well, but you have to be willing to trade your time up front. So and another good point there is, you know, there's different people in different stages of their life. You know, some people might have more time than money. Some people might have a little bit more money to spend and they have time. In that case, you know, be a passive investor, right? Start investing into these syndications, find people that, you know, are willing to let you get a peek behind the scenes and let you be maybe a little bit more involved and, uh, you know, start investing in these, uh, in these projects. And, uh, you know, that's a great way to start getting into things. So really the distinction between what do you have more of time or money? Yeah. And as far as the money side, you know, there's a lot of passive investors, right? So if they're all asking to see behind the deal and I have to spend a lot of time with that, I, I may have to do something to distinguish who, who gets in and who doesn't on that. And one thing people don't realize that you always need in these deals is what's called risk capital. If someone has money and they're willing to put in risk capital, that's going to immediately get you on my team, right? So the risk capital is the earnest money down that you put down when you first go into contract. It's the money you spend on due diligence. You know, you can imagine what it costs to inspect a large apartment complex. If you know what it costs to inspect a single family home, now we're going to do that times 100 units, right? And we're going to inspect the sewer lines and all that. And that's money that you put out out front that if you close and everything goes well, you're going to get that money back. But if you don't, 
you don't necessarily get it back. The earnest money deposit, usually you can get back within a certain time frame, and then it goes hard if you go past that. But, um, you know, what you spend on an appraisal, on an inspection, on environmental assessments, things like that, that's money that's out the door that's not coming back, even if you don't um, close on that property, right? So somebody has to come up with that on every single deal. And that's usually one of the partners. So one way to become a partner in the deal is to be the person that provides that money. And you instantly get a piece of equity for doing that, usually a pretty good sized chunk for providing that money. And you still get your money back at closing. So if you close in the end, you have no money in the deal, which is beautiful and you have equity, but you're taking a risk, right? So if you're not particularly risk averse and you have some money, that's a good way to get in. And uh, all deals also need key principles. Those are the people who uh, put up their bank account um, towards towards the bank. You know, they want to see that you have a certain amount of, of liquidity and that sort of stuff. So you don't necessarily have to know everything about real estate if you got that big bank account and you're willing to, you know, to uh, you know, lend that credibility towards the bank. That's another way that you can get into a deal. It doesn't necessarily cost you anything, but you're, you're just using your reputation and your uh, your good credit. Right. Yeah. It's always a, a trade-off, right? A give and take, right? What are you giving so that you can take something away from, from right. the investors themselves, but you have to give before you take. So yes. it comes in many forms, uh, but if you're willing to give, then uh, there's always going to be reciprocation as far as from the, the team or the investor themselves to kind of let you in on things a little bit more and uh, even, you know, give you a piece of the, the piece of the equity, like you just said. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So kind of switching gears a little bit, I do want to really uh, kind of talk with you a little bit about uh, the nonprofit that you are currently working on. So you mentioned that one of your big whys was that uh, your son was born with autism and uh, your nonprofit that you're working on right now that we talked a little bit about before the podcast, that is really where the focus is. And I can definitely tell there's a big passion uh, coming off from you uh, working on this project. So would you mind just kind of walking us through um, how that got started and uh, what is it really all about? Because I do know that it really does fill, uh, I would say, a pretty big need uh, in the marketplace, what you are doing with your nonprofit. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to need, absolutely. Right now, well, the statistic that just came out, we don't know if it's real or not, but the CDC just came out with new statistics saying one in every 35 kids in the United States is now diagnosed with autism, which just blows my mind. So um, the previous statistics was one in 44. The CDC did say because of COVID and delayed diagnosis, the, the new numbers might be slightly inflated. But whether it's 35 or 44, that's still a crazy number of kids being diagnosed with autism these days. And that curve is just exponentially increasing. So it's it's really kind of frightening. And the fact is that once these kids turn 18, it's like they're just dropped right? There's support all through school, not great support, but there is support. And then they become adults and it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing there. And um, so what we want to do is develop communities that have that continued support system. Because as I've known with all the parents that I've gotten to know over the years, my, my son attended a school specifically for kids with autism. So he was in the same school for many, many years. We got to know all the parents there. And they all have that same fear, like what happens when something happens to me, right? right. Who's going to look after him? Where's the safety net? 
who makes sure there's something in his his or her life that is meaningful a job a career friends all those things that we kind of take for granted that as your child grows up they become adults and they just kind of do these things right well that doesn't necessarily happen here so it's all about building communities that have affordable housing for autistic adults because they do struggle with employment not because they're not super intelligent some of them are extraordinary intelligent some are downright gifted um, not everybody but i mean they they're all capable of work but because they generally have social skills that aren't very good um they really blow the interviews <laughs> i know my, my son is horrible in the job interviews and um we all know that the people that advance in companies isn't necessarily the smartest people it's often the people who schmooze their way up well or just are very good socially right they lack those skills and so they can struggle um from a employment standpoint and so the housing needs to be fairly affordable um, they need a community of people that they can make friends with people that understand them and other autistic people are exactly those so it's a community for specifically for autistic adults and um, it has other integrated services somebody to check in on them make sure they're okay uh, help them with transportation to get to their jobs because oftentimes they don't drive about 50 percent of the population does not drive so just lots of services like that I could go on and on and on but I don't want to take up your whole podcast but that's the general basis is to provide this I just saw this huge need talk to all these parents my son's entering adulthood I'm wondering where he's gonna live and um, and then I'm also doing this real estate thing so I'm like hey let's just combine these things let's do this so yeah yeah, absolutely. I I mean, you're doing a lot of great work, I think, in this because I not from my my knowledge, I don't think there's any anybody else out there doing something similar to this, providing this need in the marketplace for autistic adults uh, with all the help they can get, as far as you know, affordable living in the community, and also the like you said, the uh, the services, right, the amenities to actually be able to help them to get to their jobs, and um, I, and I know a lot of parents that. Um, that you know, kind of, we know in our circles with autistic children or just children with special needs in general, uh, yeah. that is a big struggle. It's like what happens when they turn eighteen, or what happens when something happens to us, right? Like you said, what happens when we pass on, and you know, what happens to our kids? So it's really interesting that you guys are are, are doing this. So how long have you have you guys been working on this uh, this nonprofit project, and you know, kind of where where is it in the stages as far as moving forward? Yeah, we started it during COVID, and apparently everybody started a nonprofit during COVID. So it took a really right. long time to get through the IRS and all the paperwork and just setting it up and getting it going. So it's still fairly new. Um, we're still shopping for like the perfect complex right now. We've set up partnerships with like the University of Central Florida, and we're looking at a couple other partnerships where they will actually have university students who are majoring in special needs, whether that's special needs therapy or special needs education or medical or whatever, where they can cohabitate with the autistic individuals, kind of like a um, student housing setting. So we do roommate matching. So they get built-in friends and then they have a, we're gonna call them neurotypical, right? And you might call them normal, but I don't know what a normal person is, I'm not normal. Um, but student living there just kind of eyes within the uh, apartment making sure everything's going on well right but it's mutually beneficial because they're learning about the community they're going to be serving and we're getting that extra assistance on the inside so we've set up those partnerships and um, we've got 
18 different apartment complexes we're looking at right now to see what's going to be the best fit for this. So we haven't launched it yet. It's very, very close, though. We are starting to take soft commitments from investors who want to invest in this, which um, it's a very unique investment model. It's a syndication, but it's not one that sells in five to 10 years, which is typical of the syndication cycle, right? It's a forever hold. So this is fantastic for any parents of special needs kids, because if you want to pass down money to your child and make sure they are taken care of after you are gone, if you just hand them cash, who knows what they're going to do with that, right? If you hand them a real estate portfolio of a bunch of single family homes, are they going to know how to manage those? Are they going to have any clue what to do and what keeps them from selling it the day after you pass away? Nothing, right? But if you... What you could do in this case is you can invest in something like this that's going to provide cash flow forever. And you put the beneficiary as a special needs trust you've set up for that child. And it will just cash flow money to them in perpetuity. And we'll still have a refinance event. So about seven to eight years into the process, we'll refinance the property. So you'll get your initial capital back. So you have no money in the deal. And then it's forever going to cash flow to you and then eventually to your child. So it's a really great way to set them up. They'll never have to manage anything. It's completely passive and it all just funnels to them. They can't sell it and get rid of it and then end up broke. So it's got that, that we're trying to solve a lot of problems all in one, one big package. And for people who maybe have their child living there, it could be a way to pay for them to live there. You could buy a share of the complex. And that can provide the income to pay for their rent and housing and services. Yeah, that's actually really interesting the way you guys have set it up, because that's exactly what I was thinking about. Um, you know, if there was a parent with a child, you know, maybe they wanted to live there, right? They can buy into it and essentially be an owner of the community that they're actually living in, which is, you know, I think is a fantastic idea, you know, being an actual owner of the community that you're living in and you're a part of, uh, you're getting getting returns from that because you're contributing in one way or another to the maintenance and the survival of the community. That's so right. that's really interesting that you guys are, are, are setting it up like that. So a little bit more in detail, if you don't mind, uh, if you don't mind me asking. So as far as return go, returns goes, um, you mentioned having a uh, consistent cash flow. It's my knowledge that uh, syndications don't necessarily have that when you're selling it off in five to 10 years, you're just necessarily cashing out at the end of the five to 10 years. You're not necessarily getting returns every year. Um, so as far as, investing in, you know, this nonprofit goes, uh, you're actually getting cash flow uh, returns every year uh, from your investments, and you're still able to cash out in the refinance event. Right, right. So um, you're correct in that syndications don't necessarily cash flow heavily during the whole period. Right. The most money comes when you sell at the end. All, but they do generally, it depends on the syndication, do cash flow some. So we tried to aim for a cash on cash return. Um, somewhere around 7% on most of our syndications. It might, at the front end, it might be 4 or 5%. It builds over time, might get up to like 10%. And then you sell and you get like a really big chunk. And so the average might be like 14% or something if you were to average that out over all the years. But you're right, it's not equal every year. And the same would be true here. It would not be the same every year. So what we know is the loan is a fixed cost, right? And uh, your overall expense part of the equation is always lower than your rental equation. So even if your rent and your expenses are going up uh, by the same percentage every year, say everything's increasing at 3% a year, 
because the expense makes up a smaller part of that equation, there's always going to be this, this growth, right? So eventually the income becomes much larger than the expenses and the biggest expense being the loan is fixed. So that's the beautiful thing. So the return on investment will grow over time. And then when we refinance to give you your initial capital back, that cash flow is going to drop back again, right? A little bit now right. because you're, you've taken on a bigger loan. So you're going to go back to a little, little smaller amount of cash flow, and then it'll grow over time. But what our end goal is that the, you are going to be cash flowing at least 10 to 12% long-term there. So once all that business at the beginning is done, right? Your initial just purchase costs and all that. And then your refi after that, you want to expect to have 10 to 12% return on your money. And that's kind of what you can count on long-term for your yourself and or your special needs person that might be inheriting it. So, oh, yeah, that's, that's actually really, really good. I mean, for investments, right. You know, having it grow over time, the cash flow that's pretty common for a lot of uh, investments out there. So, um, you know, I think this is a, a really interesting, you know, really interesting investment. So I'm assuming, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but multiple apartment complexes, right? That's the goal. Multiple apartment, con just like yeah. syndications, yeah. right? Multiple. Yeah, exactly. So we're building the, we're trying to build the perfect model here in Florida. Okay. That's where I'm at currently um, because we have this partnership with the University of Central Florida. They have a whole autism program there called CARD, Center for Autism Related Disorders. That's housed at UCF. So they already have a lot of expertise. They're already doing a pilot program like this on campus. And they're looking for some place for these students to go once they leave campus. They can only be in the campus program for one to two years. Then they need somewhere else to go. So they've already sort of got a pipeline coming. So um, that's why this is a really great place to kick it off. But once we have a perfect model and we can take that to other universities across the country and say, hey, here's what we did here. I think it'll be much easier to scale faster. And so then we'll be looking for partners to scale with this. But we're not quite there yet. Um, but hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have our first first place and then uh, we'll see where we are next year. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I you know, I can't wait to kind of see this this progress here yeah, because this is really, a, you know, you guys are doing a lot of good. And, you know, it's a it's a really cool model that you guys are building out with partnerships with the universities as well. So I'm definitely full support of it um, and uh, can't wait to see how it progresses. And And just one last question for you and on this specific topic as well, setting up a nonprofit, right? I think there's a lot of people who might have desires or aspirations to set up nonprofits either, you know, soon or sometime in the future, as far as maybe just comparing it to setting up a syndication or just in general, how difficult or hard is it to set up an actual nonprofit? Is it easier or much pain. harder? <laughs> it's a real pain. <laughs> I couldn't have done it without some really amazing attorneys that volunteered their time for us. Um, there's, there's, I, I don't know if I should name drop it. They may not want me to, so I, I won't. But um, there's a group of uh, three attorneys here in Orlando, all of whom happen to have autistic children. And they formed a firm together. And they basically said the resources of our firm are at your disposal. So that was absolutely wonderful. So they not only made sure that we got everything set up exactly correct from the beginning, but they have helped me with every other step, you know, being able to take a donation, a $5 donation, there's a bunch of paperwork for that, you know, and, and just making sure you, you, 
you don't know what you don't know. And having somebody in your corner that tells you all those steps is, is absolutely invaluable. So yeah, look for people like that in your community for whatever cause you might be looking to do and see if there's some attorneys or someone that can help you establish it because I would not have gotten through the process on my own. Right. Absolutely. And this, I mean, the same concept goes for building out your team, right? As an investor, or as a business owner, you got to find the right people to, yes. uh, to be able to support you. And just like we were talking about here. So that's, that's actually a really valuable lesson just in general. And whatever your main goal is, you know, for us, the big goals is the apartment complexes, but we're trying to provide a lot of value up to that point to serve that community. And so if you're trying to establish a nonprofit, you should do the same because that can make you more eligible for grants and get your name out there, get people to know you. So we're doing a lot of educational webinars for people with special needs, all sorts of special needs, parents with special needs, to let them know about things like setting up a special needs trust that we just talked about. Like, how do you do that? Setting up guardianship. Um, how do you want to structure your will? You know, things like that when it comes to your child becoming an adult. What are your housing options? Because not everybody will be able to live in a semi-independent apartment complex, even if somebody's looking out for them, right? So they may need other options. So what are those options? What are the government benefits they qualify for? When do you need to apply? Should you have a guardianship? What are the downsides of a guardianship? Able accounts, there's all this stuff and, and you don't even know what you don't know. Again, I'm gonna keep saying that because as I was speaking with um, another um, professional that's been helping me along the way, who's actually gonna be putting on a webinar for us um, about a bunch of this stuff um, very shortly here. He, he asked about my son. He's like, well, have you done X, Y, Z? And I'm thinking I've done all this stuff because I know this stuff. Yes, I've got my guardianship in place. I've got these things. And he goes, well, what about social security? I'm like, well, he doesn't need that yet. He's living with me. He's fine. He's like, well, how old is he? I say, he's 22. He goes, you know, if you don't apply by 23, there's a whole bunch of stuff they're not eligible for. I had no idea. So even though he didn't need it now, I need to be applying right now. If he gets a accepted, then if something happens to me or my husband, he gets our social security for the rest of his life. I had no idea that that was even a possibility. So a lot of it is just connecting with the right people and finding out what you don't know, and then sharing that information. So I immediately hopped on Facebook and Instagram and everywhere else and shot videos and said, hey, all you people with special needs children out here, did you know? If you're coming up on that 23rd birthday, get it done. Because I had two weeks to get it done all of a sudden. I'd been putting it off for years because I figured I had all sorts of time, right? So, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. very important. Give back, give back any way you can. And, and our way of doing that is a lot of education. Yep, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's exactly what you, you need to know about, you know, anything that you're you're looking you're looking into, whether it's something about yourself, about your business, about your family, right? You don't know what you don't know. And the more information that you can have, the more you know, there's people like yourself out there who is sharing this information, the better it is for everybody around you. And it always comes back. So, well, Maria, I really appreciate you being here. I really enjoyed our conversation. I personally learned a lot from you as well. And for those listeners out there who want to know more about what you're doing, either with your investments or with your nonprofit and the projects you're working on, uh, what are some of the best ways that they can reach out to you and maybe follow you on social media and different places that you're uh, active on? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm definitely on all the social media platforms. So it's Maria Zondervan, Z-O-N-D-E-R-V-A, and I'm sure you'll have it in your notes. But the easiest way to find me is blueVikingscapital.com. So it's Vikings with an S. 
So um, I'm originally from Sweden. So Viking blood is there. The nonprofit is ValhallaVillas.org. That's also Viking based, right? But there'll be links to everything from BlueVikingsCapital.com. So there's links to the nonprofit. There's links to investor guides. I've got a free book I give away to anybody who's interested in getting into their first passive investment deal. Whether you're looking to do that on the active side or the passive side, this book can be really great because it kind of breaks down all the steps and what you want to look for. So that's completely free on there. And um, and we'll list webinars. There's sample deals out there you can look at if you're not ready to invest, but you want to know like what to look for in deals. There's a bunch of samples and there's videos, um, lots of instructional, just education. I'm a, I'm a big believer in education. There's a lot of educational resources on there. So check that out. Yeah, absolutely. We'll make sure to leave all of that and the links to your websites and your social medias in the uh, show notes and the description down below. So it's easy to find. But make sure to go check it out. I think there's a lot of interesting things um, that Maria shared that will be interesting for a lot of us to support and um, go in and, and see for ourselves, you know. So Maria, thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. Uh, before we let you sign off here, is there any last tips, pieces of advice that you want to leave with us here? Um, I don't have any other brilliant things to do. <laughs> Just find someone who's doing what you want to do and find a way to give back to them and, and they'll help you out. People want to share. People want to be helpful. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, Maria. That was a great tip. And uh, thank you for being here today. And uh, thank you for tuning in. And we will see you on the next show. Take care. Take care. Thank you.